Well, good morning again to you. The beginning of this week, I thought, all right, first weekend in January, so I can lead worship and preach, that's cool. And then the Lord was like, hey, how about some throat sickness? And I was like, okay, it's cool, I could do it. And then the Lord was like, hey, how about a winter storm? And I was like, now things are really getting interesting. But uh, I am, I'm very glad the, the advice I had to give myself this morning was I'm going to have to talk slowly and I'm going to have to try to not get excited. <laughs> and if you know me, this is a real ordeal for me this morning. But we are starting in a new uh, series about sharing Christ, a series on evangelism, and we're starting um, with sharing Christ at home. Now, I understand like... Uh, Many of us have very different experiences, either growing up as a child in a home, depending on what the, the Christian or lack thereof environment may have been. So some of us have a very fond memories of growing up, having Christ being preached and taught in the home, and some of us maybe don't, right? We have different stories about how that went. And um, the passages of Scripture that I'm going to be using today um, are passages of Scripture which are a little bit hard for us once we get into them, because some of, the, some of the parts of the scriptures are a little bit hard to understand, and what we're going to attempt to do this morning is to glean from both of these passages uh, what should our homes look like? What should, what should the homes of Christ followers, people of God, look like in sharing the gospel inside the home? We're going to dive into that this morning. And we're going to uh, separate this actually into two sections. We're the section where we talk about the ideal Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And uh, later on, we'll talk about the reality in uh, Matthew chapter 10. So it might get a little messy this morning, um, but no better place to get messy than in, in God's house with God's people using God's word as our guide. So let's just start off with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 and the ideal. So to set the stage here, um, Israel is being set apart as God's nation. They've been called out from Egypt where they were in bondage. Um, not simply bondage uh, physically and physical labor, but they were also in bondage spiritually because they were living in a completely pagan um, society. If you know anything about uh, Egyptology or the religious landscape of Egypt, it's pretty messed up, right? All those uh, half-animal, half-people gods and uh, lots of crazy practices and superstitions. So when we think about Israel being captive in Egypt, it wasn't necessarily just kind of a work captivity. They were captive to the entire culture, and that's where Israel usually finds themselves. And so as God has called Israel out from uh, captivity in a pagan culture, he's also warning them that they're getting ready to go take uh, a promised land that is surrounded by pagan culture and saturated with pagan culture. So if God's going to give his people instructions about how they should live, uh, what are the things that he puts at the top of the list? And this is where we encounter Deuteronomy chapter 6, especially verses 4 through 9. And what we see here is that the Israelites were given a system of familial education designed to saturate them with the principles of God's people. This was God's design for making sure that everything they encountered would point back to what God had done for Israel. So as there's being established 
um, this people that God is saying, hey, I've called you out, I'm setting you apart. There's also some marching orders that they're getting from Moses as they're being set apart. That's what we just heard, but let's read through it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your might. These words that I command you shall be on your heart today. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the pattern for God's people to live at home was, first and foremost, God's word in our hearts. God's word in our hearts. And if you'll notice there, right at the beginning, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your might. It actually starts with not just a recognition of God being the one true God, because they were surrounded by polytheistic cultures. So when we see, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, there is a, a, some form of Trinitarian theology embedded in that, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, though we don't get the fullness of that in the Old Testament. But primarily what we get is you are not a polytheistic culture. This is not God and This is not God plus. Hear now, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one, right? The one true God is whom you serve. But also, right after that, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your might. It starts with love of God above all other things. If love of God is not the foundation of God's people, and if love of God is not the foundation of our homes, then everything we do will become a bitter taste in the mouths of our families. And here's where we get kind of tripped up, and we'll see this was the truth with Israel. There were many in Israel who were not, we would say, true Israel, who you know, would listen to what Moses was saying and say, okay, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But where they got tripped up was this love of God peace, right? You can be part of the people of God and not truly love God, but things will not work out well for you. We talk about sharing Christ in the home or sharing the works of God in our home. The first place we start is actually loving God. I know that seems very elementary, but it's something that is is missed a lot, especially when we consider the formation of our homes. If the goal in our homes, right, if God's goal for his people in their society, in their families, is simply to create good kids or present us as good families, The lack of love will simply make us a house full of legalism, and it will put a burden on everyone in that house and in that society that no one can bear, right? If the goal for us becomes we want to be good people, that's that's really not the goal, right? The, The goal all flows from a love of God, knowing him and knowing enough about him to love him. Because when you really know who God is, the only right response is to love him. And that's why this starts where it starts. Sharing the gospel in our home has to begin with a sincere love for God and a relentless commitment to loving him because of who he is. Right? Do You see how loving God was a directly after knowing who God is. Right? We don't love God just because he'll make our lives better. We don't love God just because he will do things for us. We love God as a right response to knowing who he is in his character. And so in many of our homes, the first question that we would ask is, how much do we talk about the character of God? 
right? How deep do we go into uh, speaking about who God is? And in fact, in many ways, uh, what has not helped is the, the church growth movement that we've experienced, you know, from years back and kind of, I would say it's surely dying out at this point, but the church growth movement and entertainment-oriented packaging of church has created an unspoken prosperity gospel that doesn't necessarily promote wealth, but it does promote a no-strings-attached Christianity that gives people all the feels of God without any of the cost associated with actually loving him. Right? And that's what many of us get tripped up on, and that's what Israel got tripped up on. If you look at their history, it was not knowing enough about God's actual character, not, not paying attention to his character enough to really love him, they got off because they kind of fell out of love. They didn't have the feels anymore. So when God wasn't serving the purpose of making them feel better about life, they would whine and complain, and God would actually condescend to their complaints in many cases. But then they would say, as soon as Moses walks off, hey, Aaron, we really need something else to worship because this God thing is not really working out. We don't feel good about it. It would be better if we had something we could look at to worship, right? That's how these things go. We see very quickly, though, that a knowledge of God's character and a love for him pulls us to love what he loves and to seek after those things. For those who love God, his words are life and not a burden. His words are freedom and not simply restriction. Look at the verse. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart is a response to love not a precursor to receiving love from God, right? Sharing Christ at home starts with knowing who God is and loving God for who he is, right? But how were the Israelites instructed that they should accomplish this? Look at verses seven through nine. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you shall teach them. You shall talk of them. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them on your hand. You shall keep them in your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts and gates. It's a lot of work. Agreed? That's a lot of God's word. That's a lot of keeping the commandments in front of us. Why was he giving these orders? Well, because we always need the word to remind us not only of the commands of the Lord, but of the motivation to continue to live out those commands. It's not just knowing what God has commanded, right? But it's the motivation behind it. Right? Why should we be motivated to walk in these ways? Again, because of who he is. So one of the most important things for Israel was to teach these things to the emerging generations. And by the time we see the book of Judges, they've failed miserably. Right? Where a whole generation grows up knowing neither the Lord nor the things that he had done for Israel. So it's extra important that they understand this. Hey, don't just say, isn't it great what God has done for us? Don't just bask in the glory of being set free from bondage to Egypt, but let's love God and let's, let's saturate our community with his word as a response to how great he has been towards us. The most foundational education 
Moses lays out here, is meant to happen in the community of faith and more specifically at home. You know, for years, my, my father and, and uh, most of his side of the family were all teachers, right? So as I say this, let me just make sure that you know, if you're a teacher in here, I love teachers, okay? But one of the traps that we've fallen into as good Americans is believing that the best education a child can have is a secular education, that that will prepare you for life. And I hope you've seen, especially at the, the secondary uh, and you know, in, in level in education now, like in many cases, the education that kids are receiving is, is not really a good education, right? It's more beset with how to be, how to be a woke citizen or like, you know, how to be nice to people, which those are good things, but the foundational education, the most foundational education is meant to happen in the community of faith and more specifically at home. It's a foolish thing for us to think that Israel never passed down things related to science, agriculture, economy, mathematics, art, warfare, etc. Right? Silly. And that's how we talk about these things. We're like, well, that's all religious education. But it wasn't all religious education. Israel would have had to prepare themselves for moving into a new place that God was leading them to. So it wasn't just the, the religious observances or what they would do to honor God that they were studying. It's that what they would do to honor God and God's character and who he was was the most foundational thing to anything else that they could learn if they were truly going to be a set-apart people and display God's greatness among the nations. It's the most foundational. And there was a time in all of society when theology was the greatest of all sciences. And every other science flowed from first knowing who God was and what he intended when he created all things. And how far away are we from that now? Right? It's a foolish thing to think that other parts of education, you know, don't matter. And the Bible is not a science book. You know, you know that too, right? The Bible is not a science textbook. It's way too small to be a science textbook. But what it is is the most foundational information that we could receive about life. Right? The most essential education for Israel was the fundamental knowledge of how Yahweh had set them apart to live for their flourishing and for his fame. The statement of God being set apart as the one true God would be evidenced to the surrounding nations by how they as people were set apart in holiness. The distinguishing characteristic of the people of God was living in a way that would answer the deepest questions of humanity, the ones from which no one can escape and for which there are not multiple solutions. Israel being diligent to pass on these things to subsequent generations was not simply for the continuance of the nation, but most importantly, for the relevance of the nation. If God's people don't put as their primary foundation an education of who God is and what he has done, we are useless to the people around us, right? We're useless. We have nothing to offer them that the world can't in such cases. And Christians who do not take seriously teaching future generations the deep truths of God and the implications associated are not only not preparing them well for life, we're also displaying that Christianity has no better answers for life than any other philosophy. This directive is not just for families at home, but delivered to Israel as a greater community. Hear, O Israel, right? And we miss that too. We take Deuteronomy chapter six, and I've, I've thought this and said this for years. It's not just about the nuclear family. It's about the community of faith supporting the education of children within that community of faith, within those homes, 
for the glory of God. There is a responsibility on parents to teach their children. Make no mistake about that. Parents, we have a responsibility. Grandparents, you have a responsibility, right? We have a responsibility to these kids. There is a responsibility, but there's also a responsibility on all the people of God to support that endeavor. One of the greatest things I think that any church could seek to do, especially in our current times, is to help support families in educating the next generation with God as the center of all things. That's why you see many churches now even starting up their own, their own schools that are built on an education with theology as the foundation of the education. One question maybe is, how can we as the people of God begin dreaming about what we might accomplish in this area? Like taking on this Deuteronomy chapter six, like how are we gonna teach our young people about God and not simply leave them to pagans to give them all the information they need to be good citizens? Our emerging generations don't need cool parents or churches. They don't need woke churches. They don't need churches built on felt needs or mere social consciousness. They need churches to dig into the reality of sin, the even messier plan of God's salvation for humanity, and enter into mentoring with listening ears and eternal wisdom from God's timeless word. If we trust that it is the gospel that changes lives, then we must be relentlessly committed to it as the only source of lasting hope, not just for our people, but for the world. And if you're careful to look at the form that this education takes, it's not merely a classroom education, right? It's not bound into a classroom education. It's an education that permeates every sphere of life using the normal rhythms God has created for human beings. So families, parents, church of God, let's consider this. When are we to teach and talk of the commands of the Lord, the things of God, based on who he is? Well, let's start with this. When you sit in your house, when you sit in your house, how much time have families in, in our modern culture, and specifically Christian families, purposed to spend together uninterrupted and making sure to focus some of that time in talking about eternal things? Right? How much time do we spend as families focusing on this? How much of our time as families is almost like strangers passing in the night, especially as our kids get older, right? We've all experienced it. If you've had kids, you've experienced that to some level, amen? Like sometimes we just feel like a glorified Uber service, yes? We don't even get paid for that, right? It's free Uber. But how about this? How about if we seriously considered that we should make a point of talking and teaching these things when we sit in our house, which means we all have to put away our phones, we have to turn off the TV, maybe eat a meal together, and ask everybody to share a little bit about how they've seen God's goodness in that day. It's a good place to start, right? Doesn't mean you have to do, sometimes, can I, can I, let me just share with you as a parent who's failed at this many, many times. Sometimes we get this idea that we've gotta get this massive study together, right, this massive Bible study, and do like a family, if you've ever tried to do family worship with kids that are great, a range of ages, it is a hot nightmare in some cases. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're like, this is gonna be great, and God's gonna bless this, and you sit down, and nobody wants to listen, and nobody wants to pay attention, and even you start drifting off, and you're like, I thought this was gonna work, right? Because we're pragmatic, but it takes time and intentionality, and I think what Moses is actually talking about here is it should be natural for God's people to talk about God's in our households. The biggest problem, the biggest problem is that for most of us as Christian families, it feels unnatural. 
for us to talk about our Savior with our kids. It's become foreign to us and something that's hard to start. But that doesn't mean we should never start, right? So if you're like, man, I've really failed in that. Great, so have I. So start now. What better time to do that than the beginning of January, right? When you sit in your house, also when you walk, right? Israel, at the time that this was delivered, were transient people, yes? They were on their way somewhere. Some of the best conversations that I've had with my own kids were on long trips, right? Or even dropping them off somewhere across town. Maybe, maybe shut the radio off and just ask some questions. Maybe tell some stories. Laugh about things, right? Maybe ask them, how are they feeling about the day? What are they nervous about? Or just let them talk. And for some families, it feels like, again, half of our life is providing a shuttle service to our kids. But we can make the most of that, right? Israel is commanded, hey, when you walk, like when you, when you get up and you're packing up your tents and you're moving, why not talk about God's commands? Why not keep them in front of us? Remember, they didn't have individual copies of the Bible at that time, right? So if they were going to pass these things on, they had to keep them in front of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk, when you lie down, especially when our kids are young, make the most of the good nights, right? Make the most of popping into the room to, to tuck them in or tell them good night. Make it a time to read to them, read with them, pray for them, pray with them. And then also recap how this day has been overseen by the wisdom and goodness of the God who created them. You don't have to have a full-blown Bible study. But it's just those little reminders to them that we as a family, we as a household, right? And grandparents, you can do this too. Pull your grandkids aside and just tell them, you know what, God has been so good to me. Let me just tell you how God has worked in my life, right? Make it a time to let them know that their whole day has been overseen by the God of Israel, the one true God. And when you rise, at the beginning of each day, maybe we could mark that day by bringing to our kids' attention that by God's grace, they have awoke again, right? You are alive this morning. You have breath in your lungs this morning because God is good. And here's this too, like maybe remind them every day as we remind ourselves that no matter what happened yesterday, no matter what a mess yesterday may have been, God's mercies are new every morning. It's a, it's a good thing right before breakfast to remind each other of that, yeah? And on top of all these things, there was an urgent instruction to keep the word of God in view in all things. Especially in a time, again, where there were not individual copies of God's word. Israel was instructed to put scripture in places where it would always be kept in sight and in mind. Right? And some of these things are foreign to us. And if you look in the history of Israel and how they were to do these things, um, by the frontlets and by boxes that they would attach with scripture in them, um, and by tassels, right? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There was an idea that as much as they could keep scripture on themselves and keep scripture in front of them in their homes and on their persons, they should do that. Israel was instructed to put scripture in places where it would always be kept in sight and kept in mind. And scripture also ensures us that it's the hiding of his word in our hearts that keeps us enamored with the truth 
when we are continually assaulted with the lies of death. Interestingly enough, though, you may look at this and go, why in the world, why in the world would God tell them to do these things? And especially if you look at the, how these turned into the practices that they turned into for Israel and in uh, making all sorts of little ornaments and trinkets to keep the word of God in to be a reminder for them, where did this even come from? And some very competent scholars have posited this was also God's design for redeeming what Israel had previously observed in Egypt as Egyptian superstition, as they used jewels on their arms and their foreheads, and they used amulets as a means of protection, and possibly as they observed these things in Egypt, they may have started thinking, well, maybe, maybe crystals aren't that bad, right? Or, yeah, maybe, maybe the horoscope's not too terrible for me to peek in on. This instruction was meant to replace the cultural superstition they had once known with instead God's law. See what God's doing here? Hey, instead of being superstitious and using all these trinkets and amulets, maybe, just maybe, all those places that the Egyptians put uh, good luck charms uh, will trust in the word of God, will trust in the promises of God. It was meant to replace the cultural superstition they had once known. Instead of hedging their bets with this cultural superstition, Israel was to keep the sure promises of God in their sight always, right? And it's so easy for us to fall into patterns of superstitious living that we have received from the world instead of replacing those superstitions with the word of God. Right? We shouldn't treat the word of God simply as positive thinking, right, or something that we turn to in order to secure our favor with God. Remember, our response to God's character and our response to, right, and our love, our love for God's character is what initiates obedience in us, right? We don't do things so that God will be pleased with us, and that's a bad thing for us to set a tone for in our houses, to tell our kids that God is more pleased with you when you do good things, and he's less pleased with you when you do bad things, because that's not gospel. Amen? That's, that's not the gospel, actually, right? And eventually, even for much of Israel, these practices became their own superstitions. What was intended to keep hearts focused on God eventually took the place of relationship with God. You can see this in the uh, sort of the delineation of Israel's history. One of the dangers that we as, as Christian families and parents need to navigate in sharing the gospel at home is to not treat the things we do of any form of works-based salvation. And that's a tricky one, right? It can be really sort of appealing to us to think that the more we do for God, um, the higher you know, we build up our, our sort of credit with him. The more things that we do externally, the more pleased God is with us. The incentive to put God's word in our sights and lives, after all, is to enjoy fellowship with God and enjoy his grace, not to do our own thing and then have credit built up with God for, you know, when we want to go to heaven, as many people do. Instead of our homes being saturated by superstition, either cultural superstition or us turning the things of God into superstition, they are to be saturated with Scripture saturated with scripture. However, there's some misunderstanding that for a household to serve the Lord and value the word means never asking questions, never doubting, and Christians are often surprised to find a member of their household either questioning the following of God or asking questions about why the household would live this way. But thankfully, God not only knew this would be possible, but actually assumed its probability. Now, here's, here's the thing. 
Like when we are sharing Christ in our home and we're keeping the gospel in our home, right, we sometimes, we sometimes assume that if we're doing it right, our kids will always jump in lockstep with us. They will never rebel against it. They will never have questions about why we do the things that we do. When we say we do this because you need to be obedient to God, they'll just be like, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and everything will be great. And you know, as well as I know, it don't work that way, right? It's not that easy. And we're never meant to think it was that easy for Israel because may I remind you that all these things they were commanded to do, they all failed at quickly and repeatedly, right? It was only God's grace that they remained a people. The reason we live by the word of God, right? The reason we live for the gospel in our homes is because God has graciously shown his power, his patience, and his love for his people. There is a motivation in a gospel-saturated home that needs to always be explained and preached to each person, and that is this, God's works in our lives, right? And you may, you may be thinking, okay, what, what does it mean sharing Christ at home? Why would we talk through Deuteronomy 6 when we're talking about sharing Christ at home? Christ is not there in Deuteronomy 6. Ah, but he is. But he is. He's everywhere, right? It's like, where's Waldo? Go through the scripture and be like, it's pretty easy to see, right? Sometimes you got to dig a little bit, but there's Jesus. And there's Jesus. There's Jesus. Look at verses 20 and 21 in chapter 6, Deuteronomy. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Hmm. Now, verse 20 is one that we don't often tack together with verses 4 through 9. We think, okay, this is what parents need to do in the home. It's your job to educate your kids, to, to bring them up in, the, in the, the, the commands of the Lord, and this is how you're to do it. Talk about the gospel all the time. You need to keep Jesus in front of your kids, and everything's going to be great, Right? Just make sure they toe the line. Make sure they know the commands of God and that they do it. But look at that verse. When your son asks you in times to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes? See, understanding the deliverance of the Lord is the point. We aren't simply to tell our children, do this, without being prepared to tell them that all of our devotion to God is a response to what God has done for us without our help and without delay. God's goodness in delivering us from bondage to sin is the motivation for our homes being saturated with his word and with his praise. I love that verse. When your son asks you in time, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Look, families, Christians, our, our kids should at some point be like, why are we doing this? They should, because it's, it's a curiosity, especially when they see people around them that seem to have okay lives, and they're not concerned about these things at all. Why do we do these things? But why? Which I know, parents, I know, I, I know you hate the but why question. I hate the but why question, right? It's like my grandparents told me, you know, and I'm sure their grandparents told me, because. Why? Because do it, because you're supposed to do it, right? But you know, that's not a really satisfying answer, especially when you're grown and your boss is telling you that, right? But Why? Why do I need to do this report, right? We should assume that if we're putting God in front of our kids, that at some point they're going to say, can you remind me why we do this? Why, why are we doing this? Can you help me remember why we do this? And our response is to be, 
because of what God has done for us. Let me tell you what God has done for us. The aim for our homes is to be the primary place where God's word is proclaimed and God's works are testified to. If we can make our homes about two things, let's make it about those two major things. Let's proclaim the word of God in our homes and let's testify to the work of God in our homes. Right? You need both. You see what I'm saying? You need both. This side of the cross, we testify to the finished work of Christ. The work that all of Scripture pointed to in the first place. See, Deuteronomy was pointing forward to the deliverance that ultimately Israel, true Israel, would receive in their Messiah paying the penalty for their sin and selfishness. Everything attested to on behalf of Israel in the Old Testament finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Our love for God because of what has been won for us through Christ, stimulates us to make our homes places where the word of God is lifted up in every area. Our homes, though imperfect, become a constant place of thanksgiving and testimony to God's promises for his people and the fulfillment of all those promises in Christ. They become a place where sin is dealt with, grace is experienced, and when our children grow and in time have the freedom to ask why we are committed to these things, we openly testify to the mercy that we have been shown through Christ and the new life that has been given to us in the Spirit. We share that Christ has shared in our sorrows, borne our penalty, been victorious over the grave, and will secure our eternity. Our response to our children's questions is ultimately because of Jesus. And to be sure, this doesn't mean that there shouldn't be instruction. This doesn't mean that there shouldn't be discipline in the Christian home. In fact, there's never a true appreciation for the beauty of grace if we aren't confronted with our sin first, right? You never really understand grace. Your kids will never understand grace if they never get in trouble, right? If everything is permitted, grace gets lost, right? Uh, in a wonderful book called Give Them Grace, Elise Fitzpatrick, um, and I'm, I'm recommending this. If you are, even if you don't struggle with parenting, uh, Give Them Grace is just a wonderful gospel-centered approach to uh, looking at how we parent, how do we talk to our kids, how, how, how do we um, become models of the gospel for them. So you can write that down. I think we will have that available um, uh, uh, out there on the, the internet as well um, as a recommendation, give them grace. She says this, grace does not forbid giving directions, promises, corrections, and warnings. Only cruelty would forbid such help. Parents are to discipline, instruct, train, and nurture their children. Only a cold detachment or a selfish disdain for children's desperate need for direction would cause us to refuse to train them. It would be a catastrophic failure to love if we left them on their own. In fact, it would be a complete negation of familial response, relationship and responsibility, right? Like instruction is important. Grace doesn't mean that we don't give directions and promises and corrections and warnings, but as we give these things, we're always hoping that the question comes back to why do we live this way? One of the instructions Paul gives to parents, especially fathers, is that they not exasperate their children by the way that they treat them, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition 
of the Lord. And those three little words at the end there, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Elise Fitzpatrick talks about that in this way. Learning to apply the truths of the incarnation, sinless life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection, ascension, reign, and return of the Lord Jesus Christ is what it means to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Sadly, very few of us have ever begun to do this. Instead, like parents before us, we train children in the tradition of our favorite rabbis and pop psychology. That's a, that's a good snippet there. The point here is making sure that our instruction in our homes should always be of the Lord. What does it mean to share the gospel in our homes? It's in everything we do, right? We don't exasperate them by the way that we treat them. We don't exasperate them by putting uh, restrictions on them that they can't possibly bear, by demanding that they be perfect and never, ever giving. We don't, we don't uh, bring them up in a way that exasperates them where we are more concerned with like us winning than them growing, right? And all of us have failed in that in, in some way, shape, or form. Our goal in sharing the gospel at home is to look at every situation through the lens of the gospel. Parents are to daily remind their families of the gospel and correct and rebuke when they're seeking to find satisfaction or ultimate purpose in any place but in Christ. And our discipline and correction of our children should always carry with it the nature and character of Christ and should be presented in a way that displays and explains that we as authorities are submitted to Christ and that is the authority for them as well, right? Christ isn't just our authority. We can say confidently, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Sharing the gospel at home is making sure to emphasize that our home is submitted to Jesus, living in light of his finished work on our behalf, right? We have, as parents, as grandparents, as the church, we have the right and we, we must say, like, this home, this family follows Jesus. Well, what if I don't want to? Well, at the point when you grow up and you're able to move out, that's between you and God. But as for me and my house, you're all in, right? It's actually why Presbyterians baptize their babies, it's, it's not a declaration of salvation. It's a declaration of saying everybody's in until by their actions they prove that they might not be, right? These are covenant kids, so they are expected to live in light of the covenant. That's why we teach them what God has done for us in Christ, okay? That's the ideal, but I want to end with the reality in Matthew chapter 10. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. We're not going to spend as much time here, but we will spend some time. Because all this sounds real easy on paper, doesn't it? You ever been to a parenting seminar? They're great and terrible, like a Christian parenting seminar, because you're like, yes, I'm going to go home, and we're going to make changes. And like two days into it, you're like, I give up. This, one, this doesn't work here. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Now listen. I'm not going to read the scripture yet. I'm going to say this first. For some families, this ideal seems to be unreachable. Either you have children who have grown up in a completely Christless home and had a radical, life-changing encounter with God, or you have children who have grown up with parents who love and serve the Lord, keep the gospel central, who decide they don't believe what they've been taught and they'd rather have the world instead, right? There are some of us that maybe are in this room today that you just feel like, I have abjectly failed. And maybe, maybe your kids are all out of the home, and what you're feeling right now is just like a tremendous depth of 
sadness, right? Because that's what we're prone to do as parents, to, to take this all on ourselves and to believe that we are the sovereign ones who've messed everything up beyond recognition, right? Now, in fact, though, if you were to read Micah, specifically chapter 7, you'll see that this is the case for many families in Israel, right? These families weren't together in following Jesus. They were divided by those who were faithful to God and those who preferred idols. Let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39. Do not think, these are the words of Jesus, by the way. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Deuteronomy, the blessing given to Levi in chapter 33, verse 9, is that they said of his father and mother, I regard them not, that he disowned his brothers and ignored his children. For they observed your word and kept your covenant, right? If Levi was going to be pure to God and honor God, they had to abandon part of their family. Deuteronomy chapter 33, the same book that we read about Israel, like making God the center of the family, right? In this case, the call to faithfulness to God superseded whatever the rest of the family had chosen, even if it meant dissolving the relationship. Well, that's rough, isn't it? Jesus, in sending out his apostles in Matthew 10, speaks some very direct words regarding the gospel going forth, including a warning of what the gospel will sometimes create in homes, just division. And the reason I'm sharing this is because I've heard so many sermons about, like, here's how to be a good family, or here's how to be a good parent, here's what to do. But very, very few talk about the reality that Jesus brings here. It's like, Jesus didn't come to make everything happy and shiny in our families. Right? Isn't that what he says? He doesn't come to make your family perfect. In fact, he came to bring, in in certain cases, division. The problem with putting all of our hope in the ideal of what it should look like is that it often disregards the reality of both sin and the salvation that comes through Christ. Some of you may be thinking, you can't possibly achieve that goal, or maybe you've just already missed. You're so far down the road of raising kids, you've already missed the boat. Well, there is still hope for all of us. Can I share something with you this morning. First and foremost, salvation is of the Lord. John 6, 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If things haven't worked well in your family, and and maybe some of your kids, maybe they're grown, maybe they're not grown, they just want nothing to do with the gospel, there ain't a lick you can do to change their heart. Your job is to be faithful and to love God and to speak of his grace. Only God can save our children. Only God can change a heart. Now that should be tremendously freeing for you. Parents, grandparents, 
you can't make enough mistakes to thwart the saving purpose of our God. You can't do it. You can screw up. But what God has purposed will come true. So as we put the gospel in our homes, we bear in mind that the gospel only bears fruit if the Lord is at work there. Secondly, Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the reward. Good kids are not the reward. Family can actually be one of the biggest obstacles to faith. Christ makes it clear that in order for there to ultimately be peace with God, there must first be division and sacrifice. Whatever is placed in the ultimate hope and satisfaction must be torn down in order for Christ to be everything. If your kids are everything, do not be surprised if Christ tears that down. Because that is a facade. If he is not everything and he loves you, he will make himself everything. And young people, that's the same for you. Whatever you think is your everything, because of God's love, he will not allow you to keep that thing that you think is ultimate. He will mess you up. But it's so good. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You, that's, that's heavy. Brothers and sisters, that's heavy. And this is the context in which Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the familial sphere, this is in the context of being rejected by family over the cross of Christ. Peter Lightheart, in a a great commentary called The Gospel of Matthew Through New Eyes, says the Jews were protective of family, blood ties, loyalties, and clans and nation. And this was an obstacle to Jesus' call in the same way that being Iranian today is an obstacle to Jesus' call. Respond to Jesus' call in Iran and you're in significant danger. It is simply very difficult to respond to the call and you literally give up your whole social world. If the family is going to flourish and if Jesus' kingdom is going to be proclaimed, then a sword must be brought against families. Division and destruction in order to be transfigured and raised again. In this setting, if a man was not willing to give up everything, his whole familial social network for the sake of Christ, he would not be a worthy disciple. Look, we want the gospel to be proclaimed in our homes. We want to teach our kids the way of God. We want to pray for them, pray with them. We want to tell them as far as we're in, you're in. But we also want to know that our family is not more important than our dedication to our Lord. And the best thing for our family is to see that we love Jesus more than we love them. That's hard. I get it. It's hard. It sounds harsh. Jesus makes it clear that in many cases, family members would be responsible for turning their Christian family members over to death for their faith. Fathers against children, children against parents, and being quoted, hate, hated, for all my, hated by all for my name's sake. The gospel in our homes is not meant to create good boys and girls who can have Jesus and the world. It is a battleground in which our ultimate hope is tested. And in the middle of that battleground, when we seem to be failing, part of sharing the gospel in our homes is being honest about our own sin and our own need for grace. 
There's been a paradigm in the past where it was a bad thing for parents to seem weak to their children. However, if families are going to understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they need to understand that adults are not exempt from that. They need to understand that we need Jesus. We love Jesus the most because Jesus is the only one who can save us from hell and futility. And he's the only one who can save them. The weaknesses, failures, and sins of our family are the places where we learn that we need grace too, at least Fitzpatrick says. It's there in those dark mercies that God teaches us to be humbly dependent. It is there that he draws us draws near to us and sweetly reveals his grace. Paul's suffering teaches us to reinterpret our thorn. Instead of seeing it as a curse, we are to see it as the very thing that keeps us pinned close to the Lord. If your endeavor to share the gospel in your home doesn't seem to be working right now, understand that God is still working right now. And it may be his goal to keep you through despair and sadness pinned close to him. Sometimes our efforts to create a gospel environment at home It will seem like everything is firing on all cylinders, and in those times it would be tempting to think it's because we're not messing it up like other people do. I mean, you you all know, if you've done this before, you've looked down on other parents whose kids seem to be a little squirrely. You've done that, especially when they're little in churches, and they're like, I can't believe those kids just ran around. Like, You know what I'm saying, right? Especially if you grew up in a small church, you know exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) However... For some of us, the whole thing is going to seem like one long line of hot messes falling from one calamity into another. Your parenting may just feel like tripping into calamity. Either way, God's grace is sufficient for us because Christ's work is being perfected in us. That's what our kids need to see, y'all. That our response to failing as a parent and our response to them failing to follow God well is that we just cling closer to Jesus because he's our everything. Everything that God has promised will come true. And everything that sin has made horribly wrong will one day come untrue. Jesus has won. That's the gospel. Jesus has won, and we must keep that at the core of our home. What is actually best for our families is being shown and simply not told that Jesus really is better than everything. So how do we balance the ideal and the real? I'm actually gonna pull from Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33, and you can kind of look these up. I'll give you the verse, verse references, sort of, but how are we gonna apply this today? First of all, grace, grace, grace. We trust in Jesus, but... These are some of the instructions that Jesus gave his followers as he was sending them out in in his quotations as sheep among wolves. First is this, live like you're sent. Families, live like you are sent. You are missionaries. You're not just parents to be parents or present these good kids to the world and say, look at what we have done. You're missionaries. Wherever God has placed you, if you know the gospel, he's placed you there in your neighborhood, in whatever circles you're in, to testify to the goodness of Jesus Christ, right? You're sent. You have a mission. You have a purpose. Jesus says to his followers, behold, I am sending you out. Does your family see themselves as sent by Jesus? Maybe this week we remind ourselves as families, look, we're not just here to spin our wheels until this world is over. We are here to reach the nations. And it starts in Cedar Rapids, right? 
or in Fairfax or in Walford or in Marion or wherever you live around here if I left out your town. Second is this, be wise. Know your family and know their influences. Jesus says beware, right, to his followers, beware. We live in a world with very real enemies. Like part of sharing the gospel in home is monitoring the influences that are available to our kids and keeping a watchful eye on friends, media, and mindset. You, you should know who your kids' friends are. If you don't, do it. Invasively know who your kids' friends are. They will probably hate you for it in the short term, but it's better for everybody in the long term. Third is this, be innocent. Be innocent. Balance zeal with discretion. Not every interaction is the hill to die on, right? Don't try to force the gospel. And Jesus says, you know, be, be as wise as serpents but as harmless as doves, right? You trust in God, then you don't have to force everything. So at home, be innocent. Don't, don't try to force the gospel. Chapter 10, verses 17 through 21, Jesus basically says, be on guard. Always remember that those closest to you will hurt you the most. Be gentle, but be aware, right? Don't be surprised when your kids, uh, maybe if one of your kids says one day, I don't think I want to follow Jesus, and then your whole world falls apart. Like, we just need to keep in mind that God is sovereign over salvation, and everything doesn't have to be the panic button, right? Now, I don't know if you failed in that. I have failed in that miserably. Like, every, everything, if a kid's like, well, why do we do I'm like, wait, 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 where are you at? Like, and then I have to give them a whole sermon. It's the hazards of having a pastor dad. <laughs> Number five, don't try to manipulate with words. Instead, speak by the Spirit. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. Jesus says, hey, don't, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit's going to give you those words. Listen, your best arguments at home won't nearly be as influential as you'd hope. Trust the Lord for a word fitly spoken in time. And if, if there's like tension at home, before you just launch into a conversation, put it on pause and go pray. Right? Now if it needs immediate attention, pay attention. But Or maybe pray with your kids before you get into it. Right? Don't try to manipulate with words. Number six, don't let fear rule the home. Like three different times in verses 26 through 31, Jesus says, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Don't let fear rule the home unless, of course, it's the fear of the Lord. Listen, everything that you're worried about as a parent, Jesus has already taken care of. So preach the gospel in your home and trust the Lord. That's a good word. And lastly, and make this a serious point with, with your kids, with your grandkids, um, with, with those in your extended family, is remind everyone of the cost. Chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Bring it all back with your kids. Make sure that you are saying to them some, somewhat regularly that they will stand before the Lord in no affiliation, no good deeds, no good intentions, no who, no who your parents are will save them. Only Jesus saves. And if you try to find your life in this world, young people, you will lose it. Only those who lose their lives for the sake of Christ will truly find it. Jesus wants our families to succeed more than we do. I guarantee you that. And he has promised that the gospel will go forth and it will be effective. He will build his church and we will celebrate with him in glory. Amen? This is a victory sermon. Jesus wins. And if you don't know him, we would beg you today, repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Father, we ask that uh, you would remind us that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, Lord. There's nothing that we can do to save our kids. If we are going to um, have our homes saturated with the gospel, Father, we know that it's all on you. It's, we have to be faithful and trust, but salvation is from you. God, we trust that. We believe that. So help our unbelief. Father, as a church, I pray that you would help us to come alongside families. Um, Lord, that we would support one another, that we would encourage one another, and remember that uh, our only hope together is, is grace. But Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you are in the business of bringing the dead people back to life and making new things out of nothing. So Lord, for those who are struggling in their families this morning, we pray that you would grant some peace, Lord, and that you would do a work. Lord, for those families that seem to be doing well, that you would remind them that it's only by your grace, Lord, that we experience uh, any victory at all. And the, the biggest victory we could aspire to is the victory that Christ has won on the cross. Lord, we did nothing to deserve that. But for all eternity, we will celebrate that. Lord, help us to celebrate the gospel in our homes and to genuinely praise you. Lord, we love you, we trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray.